This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Traffic Tech. Your business is what moves us, what moves you. Traffic Tech offers a variety of global logistics services, including trucking, intermodal shipping, customs brokerage, and supply chain consulting. To learn more, visit our website at trafficTech.com. From Washington, D.C., this is Trade Geek Podcast with your host, Pete Mento. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mento LLC. Mento LLC Trade Consulting focuses on issues of duty minimization, recovery, and elimination, while also helping our clients with trade compliance issues of both the import and export nature and global cargo security. You can reach us at 978-317-3250 or email me directly at pete.mento at Mento LLC. You know, at the end of all of my podcasts, I ask everyone three simple questions. And the third one, the third one always gets to me. It's this question I have, what would you do if you could do anything, anything other than the job you have now? We get a lot of interesting answers here on the Trade Geek podcast. Lots of jet fighter pilots. That has come up a lot. We've also had a lot of professional um, sports stars, lots of people who wished that they played in the NFL. I find that very interesting. Today's guest may have the job I would want to do. Now, I don't know, I don't know for sure if I'd, if I could do it because I don't know if I have the stomach for it because it would take a lot of patience and um, which I do have a lot of, but patience with information and with people, I don't know if I could, um, if I could muster. Today, we are joined by Miss Cynthia Hetherington, and um, Cynthia is amazing. The term Renaissance woman comes to mind. Uh, a woman who studied library sciences, who, who studied large computer systems, data systems, who took this amazing collection of information, amazing collection of experiences, and laser focused it on the use of the internet to investigate and built the security company around it. She is a fascinating person. When you go to any of the CPSC meetings, TAPA, HDA meetings, a lot of the time she'll be speaking. And when she does, it's a packed audience because of what she does and how few people that engage in it can do it in a way that gets all of us engaged with her because she does it in a way that isn't scary. Technology to many of us is it is a little bit, it's a little bit intimidating, but now Cynthia, Cynthia makes it fun. Um, she makes it fun because investigating people is fun. She doesn't do it by, uh, she puts it doing a stakeout, you know, with your uh, large regula of Dunkin' Donuts. She does it by using the internet. And for any any of us that have had a crazy ex who knows how to use the internet to find out something about people, let me assure you, the things that her group does go far, far beyond that. But we live in a world now where so much information 
about people, about companies, about concepts, and about bad guys can be found on the internet. So of course, there is an entire industry that resides out there where you can use the power of computing, the power of just good old fashioned creativity, and the power of hard work to build an entire industry and an entire company that's based on the use of this data she has. She's a wonderful lady, and I'm so happy that she joined us today. She's also brilliant. And you'll see that through the course of our interview today. It was a real pleasure that she came on the podcast, and I am so, so, so excited she joined us. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Trade Geek Podcast, Miss Cynthia Hetherington. Tried to hit record. Oh, recording started. That's it. Now we're recording. It's official. All right, Cynthia. Welcome to the show. Thank does you. It feel, does it feel like you're actually being interviewed in a podcast? I feel like I'm talking in a box right now. Yeah. Well, you've got a, a beautiful office there with your fire crackling in the background. I yeah. After uh, COVID kind of forced us into these little boxes, I decided to take mine up a level. So thank you. No one ever gets to see it on podcast, but it's yeah. fun. And ironically, I actually face into what was once a closet. I never see what's behind <laughs> me, but I hear the views great. <laughs> to get you a mirror. I, I I really hate looking at my video of myself uh, all day long. I tend to turn it off. I don't think I was meant to see myself all day. You know? No, well, I purposely put pictures of myself everywhere. <laughs> well, that's good. Kind of like a parakeet. You know, who's a pretty bird? You just sit there and stare at yourself all day long. I'm that's from Jersey. Of course, that's how I do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cynthia, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it is an honor and a pleasure. I... I always, um, there's a lot of interesting people at these cargo security, supply chain security functions. Very few are as interesting as you. And I, I mean that in the um, the most complimentary way I possibly can. And the reason I say the most, because usually when you say to people in the security side of things, boy, you sure are fascinating. Uh, that's that's not a compliment. It is in this instance, because it is this instance because of, of what you do, how you came about doing it and um the particular the particular stories that can come from it uh for those of you who don't know could you just do me a favor and in the simplest terms possible explain the kind of work that your group does uh thanks very much for having me um in a nutshell my one tagline is we protect life property and reputation you do it in a very interesting way though um do you do you have armored cars? Do you own giant warehouses with seven foot cement walls? What exactly do you do to ensure all of this? That makes me chuckle. So I'm definitely the type of security hawk that you would never have do an interview, never sit in a car to stare at someone's house. Um, yeah, no poker face. And my bladder is the size of a five-year-old on a class trip. <laughs> uh, my myself and my team, we specialize in doing open source intelligence. So we sit behind our computers all day and monitor the internet, either through social media, the dark web, the things you discover through Google, anything that's open and apparent that could be discovered, because a lot of you know data and security are really hand in hand today. What was a threat maybe 10, even five years ago 
has kind of gone to the wayside compared to what we're seeing through internet and people's activities here. Uh, we we sit in this space and we monitor continuously to make sure, you know, everyone's playing fair and everyone's being heard. But when you cross the line, we're going to be on top of you. So that must lead you to a bunch of different type of work then. So there's. What are the kinds of work that you could do that you can talk about? I'm sure there's things you can't, but what are the sorts of projects that you would get involved in? Right in our space here, you know, when we're talking about cargo and supply chain and, you know, getting goods from manufacturers to to the store shelf, I mean, just that in and of itself, we can keep an eye on what the Internet's pumping out as far as disinformation or misinformation, which can be very disruptive and cause um, a lack of cohesion between the suppliers and the vendors. But we can even start as early as the intellectual property cycle. So I say from idea to delivered product. You know, the scientist creates something, starts putting it out there on the internet as far as surveys and results. And we might catch that and say, oh, we have a competitor coming out in the market. Because we'll be looking at patents and trademarks and intellectual property in its legitimate sense. And then once the product gets created, is there any diversion? Is there any theft? Is there any um, counterfeit? You know, we'll look for that material out there. And and I say we'll look. I, it, it sounds elusive, you know, like, what, what do I have a special pipeline? No, we're we're just really well-functioning Googlers. We're called <laughs> dorks, actually. It's called Google <laughs> dorking. Um, and there's, there's software and services out there that support this because the internet is so vast and information is just, you know, multiple multiple generational within seconds that We'll take the AI, which is good and, and robust, but we'll we'll attach that to human intelligence to make it an effective search. Uh, I think the best use of this that I could talk about was Operation Vax, where myself and you and 78 of our closest and dearest friends that were responsible for making sure that the vaccines got off of the manufacturing floor of the pharmaceutical manufacturers and to the people on the street, we were all involved in that, making sure that there was no disruption and counterfeiting. And it's not just myself, but, you know, Microsoft was involved, you know, Andrew Boyle and his transportation company and all the Marshall Service, Operation Warp Speed, intellects like yourself coming in and giving us a fresh perspective about what we should look for. It was really, it really was a task force. And I really have to say I benefited a great deal from that and have only improved the offerings we have since then because of gaining perspective in the throes of an emergency and realizing that, we could bootstrap an operation within two days and it's not going to take two months and 14 people to sign off on a document. Yeah, I think it's important to note that I don't think anybody got paid, did they? Oh, no, absolutely yeah. not. No, all, all our all our staff were volunteered in. Um, Chuck, who is our, you know, our grand marshal and our leader of this from Chuck Forsyth from HDA, he really was the guy who came up with the idea and I just jumped in and said, yeah, why don't we do this? It sounds like fun. All the software providers volunteered their software as well. So I'm, I'm appreciative of them because these packages could go for thousands to millions of dollars a year and they didn't hesitate to step up. But you know, I think really at the end and, you know, I don't care politics, one thing or the other. We all wanted to get back out on the street and in front of each other. So we all really leaned in and, and it worked. It worked very successfully. I'm very proud of that. Although I will take the credit for all of us. I'm pretty sure that the vaccine got out there very safely because our marshal service, you know, you know, ferried every single shot <laughs> through the yeah. system. 
but but we had a piece of it. <laughs> I, I was still. I remember on those calls. First, I remember being on calls with NDTA, the National Defense Transportation Association, with Admiral Brown, and being on those calls and all the conversations about where are they going to find enough refrigeration and how are they going to keep things secured. And then I got on calls with us, and it was more to the effect of how are we going to keep people from stealing it? Mm. And how are we going to keep people from stealing the technology of it? Just trying to willingly, how are you going to keep counterfeiters from saying that this vial of saline that's really nothing but I, you know, contact solution isn't the vaccine? And these incredible conversations where people were collaborating. And I don't think anybody ever stole any stuff while we were doing that. It was incredible. Uh, we were, I mean, I, I call this a success because we did not find one single measurable true threat to the supply chain. There was a lot of nagging mentions, and that's what you do in our space is we knock down a lot of the mosquitoes, you know, while we're trying to keep the hornets out. So we um, we caught those messages and, you know, the the pharmaceutical companies themselves were seeing these directly. And, and the the liaison was you know, the, the gentleman at the helm of, you know, Moderna or J&J might have gotten wind of something because everyone's going to let him know as soon as they see something. Right. But he's going to kick that to us as his analytical team to to say yay or nay to. And that was just, we just grabbed it and ran with it. We're not the front line. My team supports the front line. You know, uh, anything from my very, and I say this with a great endearment, my knuckle draggers who might be, hmm. you know, walking a fence line you know, doing that midnight shift all the way to the decision makers who put them out there. Our task is to constantly give them the data support that they need so they understand what challenges are coming their way. So it could be the dark web and, you know, maybe a nation state that decides to steal the formula and try to replicate it all the way to, um, in fact, with this Operation Vax, we learned very quickly about the very specific organized crime groups that do hit cargo in the United States thanks to one of the investigators at a GBI. You know, we sat down and talked talk to us and said, these are the five groups that we watch on a regular basis for stealing stuff out of tractor trailers. This is the language they speak, and these are the threats that are involved. Now let's apply it to vaccines. And, and we were just able to roll with that. That's so awesome. There are, there are two, it's a good lead in. There, there are two big questions I have. One of them you're going to make fun of me for, uh, and any illusion you have of my intellect will be erased. So we'll oh. save that one. The first one, uh, I think a lot of people have a question about, and that's that's about artificial intelligence. So when you when you and your team are scrubbing the internets, I guess, how much of that is some crazy software or some crazy AI and machine learning? And how much of it is somebody with a mouse and a keyboard? Uh, Pete, that's a great question. Um, the AI questions really hopping up a lot because ChatGPT and BARD have been just released. And now, you know, organizations like Business Insider and Bloomberg are talking about the jobs that are soon to be erased because it is. Um, I was told that in 1991 as a librarian that the internet was here and I would no longer have a job. And mm. we still see libraries out there. They're not the same traditional card catalogs you visited as a child, but with technology comes change. Let me first, and besides having a master's in library science, I have a master's in information technology and, and distributed systems and large data. So I can really look at it from both sides of the information hub. First and foremost, 
somebody has to build AI. So <laughs> our jobs aren't going anywhere because somebody has to teach that AI the language. And I had this discussion with a, a union guy once. He says, you know, all those stores that are getting rid of uh, checkout counter people because they now have automated checkouts. You know, they're anti-union, they're anti-establishment. And I said, well, yeah, but you know what? Isn't it a union guy that installs and builds that and puts that in there? So it's not a change. It's just a transition. So embrace the change. Don't ever try to confront technology. You will mm. always lose. And the other thing of this discussion is uh, artificial intelligence is not behind the software. It's very little actual AI is behind the software we're using. It's all machine learning. And, and I know that that sounds like a nuance, but if you get into the real serious, you know, postdoctorate um, user experience developers, they'll really break that down because that will have an impact. Maybe not in this year. This year, we're still kind of going like, oh, look, chat GPT can write poetry to me and make a photograph of me. But in truth, it can't really create any endurable program that hasn't been quality controlled and battle tested. You're still going to need an analyst on the other side. You will always need a human to say if something is right or wrong. A machine will never understand moral platitudes or ethical dilemmas to be able to make that decision, a split decision, especially, you know, back to my knuckle draggers. The guy who sees someone approaching a gate very quickly has to make a split second decision. Is he a threat or is he vulnerable? And that's where I feel where we have it. Um, I'm sorry, it's a long answer to a question. No, it's a great, great answer. We love long answers. If people <laughs> listen to this to actually be educated. I, I I love the philosophical concept of the use of technology. Um, you know, virtual reality, at what point does it become detrimental to mental health to have people who can create a virtual reality version of a loved one? Is that good if we can never really let them go? Or is it is it good because it gives people an opportunity for some degree of closure? There are people that are finally having a degree in philosophy could get you paid, by the way. So there are people who are having deep conversations about this. And then something you just discussed, right? With I, I did a trade school on Friday where I asked ChatGPT why humans should be afraid. Yeah, that's right. You heard the Stoics. Why ChatGTP? I asked ChatGTP why human beings should be worried about AI, and it wrote me a very good answer. Like AI wrote me an answer about why I should be afraid of AI, and I cut it out with Snip, and I put it on my presentation. I was like, "That's fabulous!" You know, you're telling me why I should be terrified of you. I wish human beings could do that. How useful would that be? So I I agree with you full full throatedly, and there's that Asimov's three rules of robotics, and and whether or not ChatGPT or some AI could create something to create itself, it, it doesn't, it's not there. I don't know if it will be in our lifetime, but I could understand for someone in a role like yours where the internet just feels so infinite. It feels so massive to have tools that are able to at least break it into a, a less massive, still massive, but a less massive thing you're searching through, a smaller haystack that's gotta be good. Asimov's first principle, as you just mentioned, um, really, yes, the robot shall do no harm to the human. Did you know that Asimov is the only human being on the planet who ever wrote for every single Dewey Decimal category? Oh. So he wrote from 001 to 999. He wrote a subject matter. And that should be true telling to 
what artificial intelligence could do versus what a human could do. Can I get a computer to author particular treaties on uh, everything from healthcare to training your dog to buying a car? Wow. Sure, sure, you could get AI to do it. But is someone going to go buy that book or are they going to buy something yeah. because Asimov wrote it? I mean, yeah. uh, absolutely. And I, I think it is important also from the AI perspective versus humans that we do have a philosophical mindset and approach to this. And I just bragged on about my, my last two degrees, but my first degree was in philosophy and it was based on Western religions. And what you're what I'm seeing now, which has brought me back to researching the early Stoics and Marcus Aurelius and Plato and you know, the, the state will never be settled until the ruler becomes a philosopher and a philosopher becomes a ruler. Because, Pete, we're dealing with that right now with technology. We are being confronted with our own greatest creation. And we, um, we're, we're frankly, we're, we're too stupid to manage it. <laughs> we're too stupid. I mean, we give cell phones to children right. much greater. We all know this much greater than any astronaut ever received in the 70s or 80s. And we expect them to not have any harm caused to them. And yet we're, it's like giving them a loaded gun and we just don't realize it. So, yeah. There's we're not we're not there yet, but we're we're getting there. And I think I think you'll see a bigger backlash of philosophy coming towards us with all the new tech coming in this direction. I couldn't agree more. You know, it's funny you for the you can't see what just happened to everyone, but Cynthia held up a, a, a book for the you know the the philosophical guide on the Stoics. And I talked about the Stoics last week during um, trade school and no this kidding. idea of, yeah, of stoicism and this return right now, it's become it's it's become amongst I don't know what that generation is called, the generation that are currently engaged in college classes. I don't know what we're calling them the the doobies, the ubies, the zoomies. I don't know what the hell we're calling them. But it's become, it's actually, oddly enough, it's become very fashionable to uh, learn about, to educate oneself with the Stoics because people feel, rightly, wrongly so, I don't know, that um, they're being ruled too much by their emotions, that they need to be, they need to have a more fact-based, logic-based life because they're they're becoming too ruled by their passions. Mm -hmm. So what can you learn from the Marcus Aurelius idea? And I'm not gonna let this podcast turn into a conversation about the Stoics, damn it because I have a comedian friend of mine who would at named Tom Rhodes, who would absolutely love this if we were to do it. Yeah. Um, but but the, the, um, the fact remains that there is a hunger amongst humans to look at technology as something we have made versus something that makes us. And are, are, we, a, are we a creation of the things, can we be defined by the things that we build and create? are the things that we build and create defined by us. And it, it really does feel as though all of society, sadly, is turning into this race to see how we can be impacted by the, the machinations of the things that we build. I, I find that incredibly unsettling, <laughs> very unsettling. You know, um, it's like a dog. And it's, it's just my, my, uh, my parable is that a man gets a dog and he, the man is the master of the dog, and the dog and the man know that. But the dog dictates what the schedule is. Very true. Yeah, yeah. I walk my dog when Lucy tells me it's time to go for a walk. Yeah, that's very true. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. So before I, I completely derail this, I, my second question, which will prove that I have no intellectual depth whatsoever, 
this is one of those things that everyone talks about, but I don't think anyone really has any understanding about. And I am going to admit it because I am a bigger man and not just by mass. I have no idea what the dark web is. I don't. I don't know. Ah. I've never, I've never bought and I've never bothered to ask anyone. So whenever we have these calls and you're like, oh, the team was on the dark web and, you know, they found whatever it was. I'm like, oh, yes, of course. And I look dead into the camera as if I have any clue about what you and your people are talking about. And I sip my coffee ever so intelligently as everyone else nods. Oh, yes, nods in agreement. Oh, yes, of course, it's on the dark web. I don't even know what the hell it is. So what exactly is the dark web? That that's actually an excellent question, and I never ever. I mean, again, the librarian me would never throw a shoulder at someone who asks a question. There are no stupid questions, you know, until we go into our break room and then we talk about you. <laughs> but the, the dark, deserve it. The dark web actually is a return to the original internet. Before we had the World Wide Web, before Tim Berners Lee gave us something to point and click at, everything had to be text based, command line. Unix or Linux. So you needed to know what you were doing to, you know, keystroke wise to go to a Gopher, Veronica, Jughead. Some of those things may sound familiar, but the truth of it was is that, and, and there's two aspects to the dark web that explain it. Well, actually, there's three. The first thing is it's marketing hubbub, okay? It's just a really sexy term that we get to use because we sound like elitists that know more that, about the web than you do, and we make lots of money doing that. So, A, B, it's just directionless internet. There are there is no domain name server, which is the thing that takes www.mento.com and delivers you to 172.39.12.16, which is your real number. Just like every human being, we love to identify with our names. The government sees us as a social security number. At some point, the Social Security Administration is the domain name server that says Cynthia Hetherington is this number. And another quick example is your cell phone. You know your future wife's phone number by heart, I'm sure, right, Pete? Yep. One of the but, few. One of the few I know by heart. Yep. Right? Well, that's it. But you don't know the neighbor. And maybe you have to call the neighbor to ask them to take your garbage pails in. So you pick up your cell phone and you look at it and you know their name. So you scroll through your directory and you push that button. It takes your request of a name, translates it into a number, and gets it to that person. That's that's the first aspect of what makes the dark web dark because you need to know where you're going in order to find it. And there's a whole treatise on how to get there and how to figure that out. The second half is that we have the ability to truly anonymize ourselves, to strip out those very same IP addresses that attach to us when we get in there so that you do not see Cynthia Hetherington coming from New Jersey. I might be you know, ding dong coming out of Russia. You know, I could purposely uh, cloak my identity so that you do not see who I am. So we can come in dark and we are we are searching in the dark. Other than that, it's just another version of the World Wide Web. It's wow. just more websites. Oh, and the content is absolutely horrendous. It is the ugliest nightmares you've ever imagined. And please, if anybody's always like, oh, I'm kind of curious. No, you're one mouse click, maybe, maybe two mouse clicks from child pornography. Wow. Yeah, there's some real sick people out there. So that's why it takes specialists to go out to do the type of searches so that when we see something like uh, a vaccine that might be getting counterfeited and we want to find the bad actors who might be exchanging that formula, we'll find them out there because that's where bad guys hang out. They don't hang out 
you know, in the front of the store, they hang out in the back of the store. Let's burn the back of the store down. Uh, and, you know, the, the First Amendment guy in me is like, but there should be a place for ideas to be exchanged. It's not the ones I don't like. Uh, anyhow, can you talk about where you're flying off to today? Um, I have the distinct pleasure of being asked to join a nonprofit um, lobbyist group actually called Raven, which is standing up uh, an argument for Congress to help fund and support Internet Crimes Against Children's Task Forces. These are the specialized police that have a real adept knowledge of um, technology that deal with all these child pornography and computer crime cases. For every 10 cops, maybe there's one cyber cop to any team anywhere, and that's that's pretty robust. Usually it might be 1 to 50. So all those cases that get backlogged, it's because we do not have enough cyber professionals doing it, and there's no funding and there's and there's very little understanding of what this is. So tomorrow we've got a um, uh, the congressional ju the ju judiciary. Let me get that word out. Um, group. Let me pull this up in front of me so I speak with some literacy. Yeah. Nope, don't have in front of me. The uh, the committee on the ju on the judiciary are meeting to talk about protecting children online. And Raven CEO, uh, former New Jersey ICAC commander and real real leader in this industry is going to be doing the testimony. I'm going to be sitting behind him, cheering him on, supporting him with research and whatnot. There's there's that. And then I also work very closely with another group called Skull Games, which is just a damn fine, sexy name. But it was what was originally what pimps called what they did for a living was a skull game, you know, swapping poor human beings like trash you know, picking them up and, and using them for their own needs and beating them when they didn't make enough of profit. That's wow. an organization that stood up also that I, I support very closely. And I mean, if anybody's interested in either of those, please drop me an email. I'm more than happy to enlighten you and share what we're doing in both courses, both in counter trafficking and in supporting crimes against children investigators. Whatever I could use my evil for, my my greedy little <laughs> entrepreneurial business mindset, I'm in. And and these folks really do God's work. Uh, I I will make sure to put the links up on the episode, and we'll try to put some traffic your way. Uh, yeah, I'm fascinated by the work you do. As I mentioned before, we started recording. Um, future Mrs. Trade Geek is also fascinated by the work that you do. I think the idea of of stalking bad people and bad activity and doing it on the internet where so many terrible things are happening and then um finding good ways to use that information finding ways to use information in a positive way uh it's it's heroic it's noble and uh, can't say enough good things about it also i will say if you're ever in in a place if you ever go to a, a symposium and uh cynthia or her group or her people she doesn't always speak now by the way she sends her lackeys her minions <laughs> to speak for her. But if anyone from the Hetherington group is speaking, you should absolutely circle that part in the calendar and not miss it because it will be absolutely fascinating. They do provide all kinds of training. So there is a mailing list that you can be on for when that training will be available where you can learn some of these dark arts. And I can't uh, I, I can't compel you enough to try to do it. So it's time now for me to ask the three questions that have nothing to do with this business. Are you ready? I am ready. Bring it on. All right. First question. First car you ever owned. What was it and what happened to it? Oh, dear Lord. 74 Chevy Nova. Oh, you had a Nova. Uh -huh. I love Novas. 
Oh yeah, that baby was a tank. I wish I still had it. What color was it? Uh, well, you know, like pukey brown. It wasn't sexy at all, you know, but it 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 was it drove. Um, you know, that's when cars were steel. So, so I I drove it into the ground and I gave it up for a little S10 picking me up truck that was just cute with a CB radio in it. I traded up. (laughs) You went from a tank. To a to an S10. S10s are great pickups. I, I they're fabulous pickups. Fabulous. I have a friend of mine that put four hundred thousand miles on his. I I love my pickup. I've never been in anything shorter since then. But I'll tell you, I didn't realize the value of what a what a Nova would be today, like an SS Chevelle or an old right. school Mustang. Yeah, my mom I had a Roadrunner. Oh yeah, yeah that is a good I would love to know what the hell that thing was worth now. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So question number two, first real job you ever had, like a first job you had where you got a paycheck, you could have been a teenager, but the first job you ever had where you got a paycheck. Other than working for my dad, I walked into a florist when I was 12 years old because I liked the smell of flowers and I begged them to give me a job there. And they felt obligated because I was a 12 year old child staring up at them with big doe eyes. And Pete, the funny thing was, is that I was, of course, a pain in the, you know what? Yeah, yeah. Underneath their feet coming in five days a week during the summer. And she says, I will give you a dollar a day if you come in three days a week or a dollar a week if you come in five days. And I've always known that I'll always have the ability to make money. So I took the dollar per week because I was more interested in learning the tradecraft than I was making making a book. And um, I still love flowers and I still make my own floral arrangements. I was about to ask, so you still have the skills? Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's not that difficult, but there is a certain prowess to making beautiful bouquets. I make basic ones. (laughs) Still, you can do it. I go to Whole Foods and buy flowers. I'm pathetic. And she loves you for it. She does. Hey, listen, there's (laughs) there's very few things that that guys can do, um, ladies as well, I suppose. But you should buy, just going and buying some flowers is so simple. It requires such little effort and thought. Yep. And it, it, but it's such a nice thing to do, and it lasts for a while, and they smell nice. And it I mean, brightens come on. the day. Throw effort into your relationship, you mook. All right, last, <laughs> last, yes, last one. If if time and space and the laws of physics did not apply, and Uncle Pete had a magic wand and I could wave it, and you could have any job, any job in the history of jobs. You could be a you could be a seven foot tall center in the NBA. You could be whatever you wanted to be. What would your dream job be? Uh, I'd be a CDC investigator at the dawning of Ebola. I'd be like, hunting uh, down in the jungles. So you'd be you'd be looking for like uh, where's the monkey? Like an outbreak? Yeah, yeah, I would. I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by the scientists who risk everything to track down and the, their intellect also working with nothing. They, they don't have electricity. They don't have proper labs, but they're out there making science work and it's for the betterment of everybody. So I find them truly uh, brave, intelligent, and very under-recognized and unfortunately more under-recognized in the last few years. But, but really, that, I think that's the ultimate uh, thrill is to discover new diseases. So here's where my cowardice comes out. Like I would have no problem if there was a noise downstairs grabbing any of the mass collections of guns I have and coming down here and saying, who is that? Like, and, and just, you know, shooting hot lead, hot lead into whoever was in my house. I am terrified 
of killer diseases. I, you could have all the the yellow suits on with the pressure and everything else and say, you're going to be fine. No, no, I'm not. I would be absolutely terrified of something like that. It's well, that's part of the thrill. That's part of why the job I am before before our most recent plague. I've always been very interested in uh, pandemics and epidemics that disrupt society. So I actually am one of the nerds who read the great influenza around circa 2017 and walking around my own little gym telling all the ladies there, I'm like, do you know a third of the world's population died only 100 years ago? And I'm, they're all like, oh, Cynthia, you're ridiculous. And the last chapter of that book was very telling, especially yeah. in hindsight when he said, you know, we're not going to be prepared to handle what's coming our way because we just don't have infrastructure. We don't have public health. Um, and he was right. And he so was right. My 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 trade school on Friday, uh, my number one thing I was most worried about was a very virulent and deadly swine flu or avian flu. And I said that pandemics tend to follow one after another. They they tend to happen in you know, they, they happen in history historically one after another. And what I'm worried about is is the the whole stoicism thing was overreaction versus yeah. apathy. You're going to have people who are going to overreact the next time we have something versus people who are like, you know what, last time it didn't really happen. What do I care? And we have not built up infrastructure. We have not built up a true response. I had said, now here I'm going again. You talked about public health. Wouldn't it make sense to have a whole new branch of the military that did nothing but public health? We just took young people and gave them a path towards a career where we just did that. Uh I I could I can lean in on that and agree with you wholeheartedly. I I think that there's an opportunity both for occupation, for new science, for new development, for objective and critical thinking, um, and and to come in and not just to be our military, but you know maybe more of a United Nations Go standpoint or, or a larger body of people. You know, World Health Organization's out there doing its best, but you know like we've got lots of science out there, and especially again as the internet is blossoming. Uh, you know, a genius every minute, essentially. We have an amazing collaborative tool we could use to make that happen. So I think that, you know, kind of like how we pulled together for Operation Vax in less than a week, 80 of us, all of us big shots, all of us too busy for our own schedules, managed to figure it out. And we, we like you said, Pete, we had a great success with that. And that vaccine rolled out to everywhere it needed to safely. I think that that, I think, what you and the rest of the team where I was creating the path, but what you guys really made happen can really be a bigger picture um, to a bigger example to what we could do as a society. But that's way above my pay grade. Hopefully well, when, when I go to Congress tomorrow, someone hears me. Yeah, <laughs> when you run for president, you can you can put me in charge of the National Institute of Science and we will we will give we will pay all the professors millions of dollars and we will we will hand out opportunities for the brightest people in this country mm -hmm. to do nothing but study and nothing but research and we'll make it something that people are actually really really uh, venerated for and then we'll we'll turn this into a, a an environment and a culture of uh, i guess of hope and exploration wouldn't that be wonderful i i agree i think so and you'll have to split your job because you'll also be the director of economics Oh God, that would not be fun. Oh, that'd be a terrible job. Everybody would hate me. Oh, they would all hate me so much. But you're so set uh, up for it. <laughs> yeah, I'm such a jerk. Well, it was a real pleasure. I know you have to go. You have to go do God's work. Um, but I uh, can't thank you enough for all the work you do and for making time for us today. And hopefully I'll see you soon at a PCSC or HDA event. 
or tapa or all the other damn things that we always end up going to. Mm -hmm. And thank you again for coming uh, on the show today and have a safe trip. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Pete. Really appreciate you. All right. Bye-bye now. We don't take enough time to consider just how amazing logistics is, but just how amazing our interconnectivity as organizations are. And today during my conversation with Cynthia, I was reminded of Operation Vax. I get these phone calls from friends of mine. And there's one friend of mine I get a phone call from a lot of times saying, uh, can I just bend your ear for a minute? And that's from my good friend, Chuck Forsyth. When Chuck says, hey, can I bend your ear for a minute? everything stops. So I, I, I put down my pen and my pad of paper. I adjust my earphones and I stop what I'm doing. And I listen to every word because when Chuck calls and says, can I bend your ear? He's not asking a favor. He's pretty much telling me that he's about to tell me I need to do something because it's important. During the throes of COVID, he had been asked by a number of pretty important people if he could collect some friends of his together to help to do something at the time that seemed difficult. And that was to ensure that the vaccines that were <laughs> through production and getting ready to be distributed made it to where they needed to go. He called up um, people like Cynthia, who you just heard from, friends of ours that were involved in cybersecurity, people from the pharmaceutical companies, other software providers, logistics firms, um, Andrew Boyle, who comes to mind, a really fascinating gentleman, uh, freight forwarders, logistics providers, and a number of other different transportation-minded professionals. And he said to them, we're being asked by not just logistics providers, but people who are engaged in the government, if we would be interested in ensuring that we can get these vaccines where they need to get to. And if we can make sure that these vaccines aren't counterfeited, that they're not ruined because it's ready for them to be brought out into public so that we can start to vaccine the public. And um, there would be no pay. We're not going to publicize that it's going on. We're just going to have a Zoom call a couple of times a week at first, and then maybe once a week as it gets more and more put together. But we just want to make sure that we're all using our collective brain power to make sure that we're doing our bit to help end this collective nightmare that we're all engaged in. And, you know, some people were moving containers full of PPE. Some people were keeping refrigerated trucks on the road to make sure that the food supply was going around and that medical devices were getting where they needed to be. But it was exciting being on those calls every week. It was incredible. And I don't think we talk enough about the incredible work that was done by this industry during the peak of COVID to make sure that the containers kept moving, that the air freight kept moving, that the planes got to the gates they got to the cargo facilities, that the jet fuel got where it needed to go. We don't spend nearly enough time talking about the work that federal agencies did, like customs, like BIS, 
to make sure that the documentation and the data flowed. We don't talk enough about all the ancillary people, particular truck drivers, many of whom risked literally their lives to make sure that the goods got to market, that the goods got to research facilities, that they managed to get wherever they needed to get so that life could go on. While we sat around in our homes and we binge television shows and worked on our laptops, make sure that our kids went to school over their devices and waited it out till we got some sort of a horn that said it was all clear. People kept the economy moving. And there were different types of people, you know, everyone from folks that worked in IT and healthcare, and that list goes on and on. But this isn't a podcast about those people. It's a podcast about us. And rather than have one of my usual tongue-in-cheek, relatively sarcastic moments, I wanted to send out a collective thank you today to each and every one of you for doing your part. You probably didn't hear that. You probably never got that thank you. But for me, on behalf of everyone, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for doing your part. I want to thank you for making the impossible possible. When the ports were so congested, it felt like nothing was ever going to move right. When we couldn't find space on the ships and the planes. When everything was so backed up, it felt like nothing was ever going to move right. Sincerely, thank you. I really hope it never happens again, but I hope that we learned lessons that made us even better and even, uh, I guess, more experienced and more capable logisticians and supply chain and trade professionals. And I kind of wish it never had to happen, but I'm happy to know that you were all there. Well done.